or keep people curious too, you know, and be a little bit mysterious and keep people on their toes by being a little bit different here. So I sort of walk that fine line between semi-radical, but also conservative. So being very, very careful about those things. I learned very early on that, you know, wearing a bright nail polish, for example, was not a good thing to do to go to a job interview. So I don't do that. But outside of those places where you really have to be conservative, I can show my true self and be more vibrant. So I think that would be quite key is knowing where you can step out and encourage others to be curious and do different things that are a bit more mysterious, but also keep up with the etiquette where you have to as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential for a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm delighted to share a conversation that I had with Catherine O'Connell. Catherine is a bilingual, in-house legal counsel experienced lawyer operating a boutique law firm in Tokyo. She provides legal counsel solutions for a wide range of clients, big and small, and also hosts her own podcast, Lawyer on Air. She has a wide range of experiences, certifications, and awards, so be sure to check her out and follow her on LinkedIn to learn even more. But before we get to hear from Catherine, I want to take a moment to go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, I introduced the common phrase, shikata ga nai. Shikata ga nai. Shikata ga nai. Shikata means roughly way or method, and nai means not or non-existing. So this phrase can mean more or less, there's nothing that can be done, there's no use, or even it can't be helped. Another common phrase is shoganai, which essentially means the same thing. And in keeping with today's guest, I want to introduce the word bengoshi. Be-n-go-shi. Bengoshi. Bengoshi is the Japanese word for a lawyer or attorney, which is pretty straightforward. But be sure to check out the kanji that make up this word in the description of the episode if you're curious. Thank you so much for sharing your time today, Catherine. This has been a conversation that's been a long time in the making, so I'm really excited to finally get the chance to sit down and speak with you about it. Great. Thank you very much. Could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm originally from New Zealand, and for those of you who have been to New Zealand or know New Zealand, as you know, we call ourselves Kiwis. Law is actually my second career. Uh, my first career was in tourism, and I became a Japanese-speaking tour guide in New Zealand after I graduated from a two-year language course in Japanese, and that was straight after leaving high school. Uh, so I used to take Japanese tourists around New Zealand, and every day was such an adventure. I rode jet boats, I skied on my days off, I landed on glaciers, and I did all sorts of things like showing tourists the Southern Cross constellation amongst the sparkling Milky Way, all of these are wonderful things. That was my first proper job. And then I left tourism and went to university at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I did a double major in Japanese and law. 
uh, researching about laws and justice system while I was a tour guide actually got me quite interested in the law. Um, and so, you know, that kind of, I guess, information, I was re researching a lot and it helped me gain this interest in law. So, you know, people say to me, tourism and law, it's not connected. But for me, it really was because I could um, see through the law that there was actually a possibility for me to do something more with my, my career. And so I did do that. I, I graduated um, after law school, got getting the New Zealand lab bar license, became a barrister and solicitor. Um, and joined a Japanese law firm. Well, it was a New Zealand law firm, but they were looking for Japanese speakers to join. And I was probably one of the first few to do that. I did all sorts of things like commercial law and employment and immigration. And actually, I just met up with a, a client from those days last week on Friday. And it's the first time to see him from 25 years ago. But we've kept up in touch over the years. So really, relationships um, you'll find out if we talk a little bit more, a key to my success all the way through. So, you know, I had seven years in private practice in New Zealand, and then I was interviewed and hired by Olympus Corporation to come to Japan on a one-year contract. But Lydia, I think I did not read the end clause of the contract I have made with Japan because it's now nearly 20 years here. So I'll pause there for a moment because that's the beginning and there's a lot of information there. No, it was great to hear a little bit more about your story. I hadn't heard about your experiences as a tour guide. Yet. Yes, that's, so that's my really mysterious first career indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what made you choose to learn Japanese? Well, you know, at the time in New Zealand, there was a great big tourism boom. And, you know, New Zealand is a very beautiful country with lots of natural uh, scenery. And so it was important that people could have a language capability to be able to help people coming from different countries. And one of the biggest ones was Japan. And so I decided to learn Japanese because I did want to work in tourism at that time. And I went off down to the local, it was a polytechnic. And I remember checking out the courses they had and uh, did this tourism diploma, which involved, you know, a, a travel agency license as well as Japanese. Um, and I really loved it. I did a part-time course first, and then I did full-time for two years. And it just was magical for me. I really enjoyed the customs, but also the language. I could pronounce things not too bad. And, you know, I really did well in that course. I actually came to the top of the class at the end of the, end of the couple of years and um, really loved it. So it's just changed my life. And sometimes you just don't know what's going to change your life. Um, and I would never have thought about Japanese, only I went there and the person who helped me look through everything was really probably instrumental in saying, hey, how about Japanese? It's going to be big in this country. And it sure was. That's definitely fascinating. And when I go to Japan next, I'm definitely looking forward to finally visiting New Zealand because <laughs> I didn't have the chance to do that last time. Oh, yes, please do. And let me know so I can introduce you to many different secret things that happen, right, <laughs> that you don't see in the uh, guidebooks, the things that I know. So let me know and I'll, I'll help you out there. I definitely will. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do now specifically? Yeah, so um, specifically now I run a law firm in Japan. And that was really after a bit of a history there. That one-year contract I mentioned did expand and I did a few other things um, because that, that sort of is important to know because it's the base of what I do now. So I run a law practice which is based on 
in-house, uh, helping in-house legal counsel and their legal teams. And sometimes they don't need really somebody to come on full-time and be a full-time lawyer that costs a lot of money to have a salary. Um, and so they just need a little bit of help here and there. And so I do that kind of part-time or project work to help out legal teams, in-house legal teams, um, because I know how busy they were. I know how busy they are, I should say, because I used to be one. Um, after, you know, working with, with Olympus, I went to um, Osaka and worked with Panasonic and had four years there in-house, uh, working as an in-house legal counsel. And actually Panasonic recently hired me back to be, you know, part of the, the service team for them for legal services and compliance. So again, relationships, really important. The relationship I built back in 2004 has come back to be um, a sustaining business relationship and revenue for my firm now. So there was that. And then I also did a few other things in-house in Japan, working for Mitsubishi Motors on secondment, uh, secondment from a law firm I was working with at the time. So all of those sorts of things culminated into what I'm doing now. And so I'm a bilingual, Japanese and English, in-house experienced lawyer, and I run this boutique law firm, which gives this commercial um, and in-house experienced advice to legal teams. I also help SMEs and other smaller business owners in Japan. Uh, there's a lot of foreign uh, people here who run their own business, and they may not have quite lined up all their legal ducks at the very beginning. And so I help them uh, expand their businesses and grow their businesses and get their legal contracts and things in place as well. So yeah, I am, um, in fact, I think you already know, but I am the first foreign female to set up a law practice, not in Japan, but in Tokyo. Um, there was a lady who did uh, set up a practice in Okinawa several years before me, and she looked after people on the American base and things like that. So I'm really the first one in Tokyo, which is um, always every day still surprises me how that could be. But it is. I'm in the history books. Yeah, that surprised me as well when I first heard about that. But just going back a little bit to what you were saying about what you do, especially working with foreigners who have a business in Japan and may or may not have quite understood what they were getting into in terms of legal work and contracts. Can you maybe lay out a little bit what makes the legal landscape in Japan maybe a little bit unique or different to what Westerners might expect? Yeah, I think because um, perhaps people have the base of thinking about law and lawyers and the system on what they are used to or where they've come from. And Japan has far less lawyers um, than, say, the American system, for example. Um, Japan has just over 42,000 lawyers. And so, you know, a bundle of those are female lawyers. There's about 8,000 registered female lawyers, so about 19%. Um, and out of that, too, there are another 430-odd 436 to be exact, registered foreign lawyers. And I'm a registered foreign lawyer. So there's a lot of different kinds of lawyers in Japan. And I think probably that's not as well known about Japan and its legal system. Uh, most other countries perhaps have lawyers who do litigation or commercial work and, or em employment law divided up in that way. But Japan has different actual varieties of lawyers. So you have foreign lawyers who can really practice in foreign law. You have Japanese lawyers, who, who Bengoshi, who can do Japanese law, of course, litigation, et cetera. But there's a whole other range of lawyers as well. You know, judicial scriveners called gyose shoshi, administrative scriveners, uh, shihō shoshi, civil law notaries, 
pattern attorneys. And then also some people throw in, you know, these others that are uh, land and house investigators and certified social insurance and labor consultants as well into the mix. So there's a lot of different kinds of lawyers and we can't do each other's work. We're separated, almost uh, siloed uh, in terms of the practice areas, but we also very much collaborate across the silos because you can't do one area of work without collaborating with somebody else. There's no way that you can set up a business and then help people with their contracts for their business all in one. So I can't do all of that myself. To set up a business in Japan, uh, I use and uh, advise and give people information about those Scriveners I talked about. Uh, one of those Scriveners can help you with setting up the business. And then once they've set up the business, I can help with some of the contracts and other things related to the business. So Japan very much divides up those people who can do, do law, who are registered to do law in separate areas. It's quite distinct and very, very important that people know that about coming to Japan. The other thing about Japan is it's a civil law legal system. So it's based on codified law. Um, there is the constitution, and then there is the five major codes, uh, law codes, civil code, civil procedure, criminal, criminal procedure, and commercial. And all of those together, including the constitution, form the six codes, the roppo. Uh, and so Japan system is really based on like German system. They investigated a whole lot of different systems and took mostly the, Jap uh, the German system into Japan. And so it's really different from the common law system, which is America, say Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, adopting a, a common law system based on uh, law courts and decisions and things like that. Not to say there's no laws or rules in those other common law countries, but Japan is very much codified in law. You can look up a uh, one of those codes and find basically find the answer to your question about the law. So that's why Japanese bengoshi, Japanese lawyers, are so very, very skilled at being able to give you the answer to certain uh, aspects under the law. Whereas maybe under common law in America uh, and other countries, it's more difficult because it could be based on a legal decision. And so you have to look up court cases and give a, a kind of a different answer. So that's a long answer for you, Lydia, but it's really very important that people know that it's very different. There are not so many lawyers. The system uh, is obviously different. And for different parts of running a business here, you'll need different lawyers. So finding someone who's well-networked who can introduce you to those other parts of the business where you'll need different lawyers. That's really important in succeeding in Japan. That's fascinating, especially thinking about how <laughs> in the first place, there are fewer lawyers to choose from, but then especially if you're a foreigner hoping to set up shop in Japan, that kind of narrows things down even more for you. So it sure does. I mean, 42,000 lawyers is not a lot. If you compare to the States where they've got um, 1.3 million. So, you know, you've got, one lawyer to every 4,000 or so people in Japan, if my math is correct, because, you know, lawyers are not very good at doing mathematics, I have to say. So maybe I've got that wrong, but there is a vast difference, right, between uh, the two. And, and even somewhere like England has uh, around 160,000 lawyers. So, you know, not uh, as few as Japan, but obviously really, really different. So you can't just find a lawyer that readily. You've got to be really well versed in how you can find somebody here too, in order to get a lawyer that you need for your specific uh, area of work that you need done. So I was a little bit curious if you had any 
specific example of how this difference between civil law and common law might play out in people's experiences, especially setting up businesses in Japan or maybe any sort of contract difficulties they may encounter. Is there anything specific that people could expect to be different? Because most of my listeners are from the US. So that's why (laughs) I'm wondering. It's a very good question. Um, You'll often find that say a contract that's been created in America under one of the state laws is really quite detailed, very intensive, has a lot from the very beginning through to the end about um, limitations of liability, penalties if uh, contract provisions aren't followed, all kinds of details really specifically laid out in the contract. So somebody who's used to that, uh, then if they see a contract that comes out of Japan, In general terms, right, things are changing a little bit in Japan, but in general, the contract is very slim, skinny. There are only a few pages. It's really not very deeply uh, detailed. The reason for that is that the detail, as I just said, is in the laws. So people generally know that uh, they can write that uh, the two parties will discuss and come to a decision or the parties will be reasonable in their approach. And you think, well, what does discuss mean or what does reasonable mean? Generally, that meaning is under the, the laws that are codified, what is expected of you. Whereas in a, a US written agreement, you'll specify what reasonable means. Does it mean you know three attempts or four attempts? Does it mean all these kinds of details that you would put in there, right? So there, there's a difference there. But generally speaking for Japanese, Uh, There's a lot of customs in the background and it comes from very, very old, old times where there really were not a lot of lawyers around. I think the local inn owner used to set up a counselling service and that person would be the one that would solve disputes. But there was usually a a sort of a pressure um, within the community to solve things. So people didn't really have contracts. It comes from that kind of cultural background. So a contract in Japan Uh, in its slimmest form, really just represents what you've already talked about. And it's just something to have in place. Uh, But it's not always necessarily the agreement. The agreement's already being done and what's on paper may be not capturing everything that's been talked about. That's a really basic way of viewing it. Things are changing in Japan as Japanese people are communicating and are doing commercial trades and deals with people such as in the United States. And so they're getting used to bigger, bolder contracts. Uh, But that is generally the difference. That's one of the big differences. And I think that can catch people unawares if they're used to a really big document and then they just get two or three pages of very vaguely written English uh, from a Japanese counterparty. Yeah, that is very interesting because I had heard people point to the cultural influence as the reasons for having these seemingly bare bones <laughs> contracts when doing business. But it's interesting that it actually has its foundation also in just how the legal system itself is set up. Yeah. And I mean, the legal system is the basis for everything, isn't it? And a, a contract is a promise with somebody under underneath it all. And so the promises and have already been talked about in Japan, already discussed And so when you get to the actual paper, it's really reflecting what's already been there. And you think about that too, and I was going to give an example a bit later on, but I'll give it now, is that when you get to a meeting room in Japan, right, often people will think meeting room, it's a discussion, uh, things will be discussed, but usually it's a place where 
the decision is reported out. So all the work has been done before the nemawashi, right, the getting conciliation behind the scenes. And when you get to the room, when you get to the contract, it's already all done. So it's not a place where you start negotiating. It's a very interesting change in perhaps the way of thinking or mindset that we have uh, in the Western uh, realm because it's very, very different. And I think getting used to that and being aware of it and not judging Japan by these things is an important part of successing of success here, right? Being successful and not running down the system in the way that they Japanese do things and just being accepting of it, uh, because that's very important to know, right? Mm-hmm. Awareness is definitely the most important first step in most sure. things, but it's doubly true in Japan. Yeah, most definitely. I just was curious about what your experience was opening your practice in Tokyo, because you are the first foreign female to open a practice in Tokyo. So I was wondering what that experience is like for you. Yeah, it's a very good question. I get asked this a lot. And really, I'd like to say it first up, I didn't set out with that end in mind. I did not set out on my journey, I'm going to start a practice and I'm going to be the first foreign female to do that in Tokyo. It was really only at the end of all of that, Lydia, that I found out from a friend who just said to me, basically, as I was waiting for my uh, piece of paper to tell me I could get started and hang out my shingle, a friend told me, you know, you're the first foreign female to set up a practice. And she had said Japan. And I said, wow, gosh, really? I had no idea. In fact, it is Tokyo, as I said before, not Japan. But I still find that fascinating, that it's me who's been the one who's ended up in the history books. Um, and my, my experience has been really rewarding overall. Um, I think good foundations make a good house and having the structure in place and um, all those relationships and good business experience really set me up better to run a practice. Uh, Most lawyers don't know much about running a business. Uh, We learn the law, we deliver our understanding of the law to help people, but we don't normally know how to run a business. So I think my in-house experience and seeing businesses being run Uh, and dealing with different departments in the company, you know, finance, HR, supply chain, logistics, you know, sales and marketing, it kind of gave me a little bit more of an insight to set up my business. I didn't know everything. And certainly, there's a lot of learning on the job. But that was really fundamental for me. And also, I think, you know, having a lot of curiosity has helped me being quite um, self-reflective, knowing where I don't have uh, all of the capability and asking people for help. And one of the biggest things I did before starting my practice was going out to talk to other solopreneurs and other law firm owners in Tokyo, people who were running small or solo businesses as lawyers. And they were just fascinating and very, very informative how they gave a lot of information away um, without counting the cost. And that was just incredible. So I built a a lot of relationships at the very beginning in a different way, people I hadn't talked to before who had done this before me. Um, So a lot of men actually who had set up solo practices uh, who were doing sort of one particular person was doing similar, you know, consigning or seconding himself to other businesses to help them. So I got a lot of great information from them and I'm truly indebted to them for everything they did for me in those times. Um, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but now looking back, they were very, very helpful for me. So for me overall, I think things have gone very well. Of course, business was down in 2020, 
2019, but 2021 looks to be my best revenue year yet. And I think it's just building upon the fantastic foundations I've had with people supporting me. That's so great to hear because obviously things went sideways in 2020 and I'm glad you were able to push through and find even more success this year. Yeah, I think I I think as I've built this muscle on entrepreneurship, I've just done as much as I can. And I really have said a few times uh, to some people about not falling into the wallpaper last year and making sure I actually stepped forward, did a lot of things, became active, helped a lot of people who needed the help uh, more than, you know, I needed help. You know, there are people who needed how could they write to a customer and ask them to be paid you know, ask the customer to pay them um, when they weren't paying bills around, you know, the t- tricky times of last year and just prompts and ways to do that. And I guess ways that were not entirely legal, but, uh, and by that, I mean, we're not enforcing a contract. I don't mean they were illegal, of course, um, but, you know, ways and means to help people in that way that they got paid and it changed their life uh, in 2020 that they could get paid and different sort of Uh, approaches to things so those sorts of things helped me and you know I managed to win a few awards last year because of um, that drive and ambition to do as much as I could in what was a very challenging year so I really did enjoy 2020 and I I feel awful saying that in some ways but at at the same time I enjoyed it because I was able to help others which in turn um, helped me to to you march on through and and make 2021 Um, even better. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely a testament to you that your impulse in such a difficult time was to see what you could do to help other people. Yeah, I think it's it's just in this situation, it's, I think it's changed a lot of people to be like that. And I don't think it's, it's me. It's, I've seen that from many people that they've turned it around and said, what can I do to be of support to others in this time? And I think that's going to have lasting effect and lasting benefits, not only for that person, but for uh, the world in general. Hopefully, you know, as people um, continue and don't lose the fact that uh, people do need support and help in many different ways. And this is just one way of doing it. Right. If a global pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we're a lot more interconnected than we like to think of ourselves. We sure are borderless, right? Really, in many, many ways. Mm-hmm, definitely. So just before we move on, I was curious if there was anything that you learned just setting up your own small business that maybe you hadn't even been aware of working in-house in other companies. Was there anything that caught you off guard or surprised you? I think the thing that caught me off was just how much paperwork is involved in setting up a business and how long it takes. And that really frustrated me at the very beginning. It really did, because even dealing with paperwork as I do, it was still a very big challenge when it was thrust upon me. So I have more understanding about that for other clients now when they have to set up and they complain about the amount of paperwork. I now have an affinity for that. So I think that was one thing. But at the same time, I think that amount of paperwork actually is a bit of a test of your tenacity. Um, have you really got the drive to stay in Japan? If you can deal with the paperwork, you can deal with anything here. So I think that was one of the biggest things was dealing with the complications of setting up a business as myself um, and having to um, work through that. But I think that's actually become a good aspect now that I'm able to help, as I say, help others 
understand that process as well and be more comfortable with that to help others uh, ensure that they don't you know stumble in the same ways that I did I think the other thing that was hard about setting up was the bank account situation it really is a thing that hasn't changed in Japan for I would say centuries since banks were sent up you know you still can't set up a bank account online or if you want to do you know tricky transact transactions sometimes you have to actually go to the bank the front counter and do things there so that becomes a bit of a problem it's a bit of a deterrent for Japan that the bank system is still so ancient um, bits and pieces are changing over time but um, it is still quite a frustrating process as well so really those sort of administrative things were the things that um, were hardest for me. The other thing I would say that's not administrative would be people's reactions to setting up a business. Sometimes there was quite a bit of reaction of why would you leave a great, you know, comfortable, high paying job and go and do things by yourself? Isn't that crazy? You know, so reactions from people and dealing with those which I did find very difficult at the beginning. You know, you sort of think, am I, you, you start to have some self-doubt. Is it really me? Is I'm, am, I, am I not seen as someone who can do that? And working out ways in which you can handle those sorts of pushbacks from people. And I think one of the things that's really helped here is having an executive coach who also guided me through ways to deal with when people have those sorts of reactions. And at the end of the day, you actually find out that it's more about the other person and their risk levels than it is about your actual ability to run a business. So those things are a few things there, administrative and sort of personal, that sort of challenged me at the very beginning. So what was the why that drove you from moving from that nice in-house secure position to well, setting think, up Shadow on your Yeah, that's a good question because I think, yeah, what's the leap? Um, but during that time when I was, I was head of head of legal um, and APAC for a, an American subsidiary of a company here in Japan. And during the time I was there, I was really running the legal department by myself with one other staff member. And that staff member went, for an, went away for another job and I was left sort of doing everything, carrying everything. I got a little bit of help, but basically I was doing everything myself. And at that time I thought, why can't I get somebody in to help me out? who could be a lawyer and just come in a few days a week or just help me with some of these other things that I can't do or are really tricky to do. I can do them, but they take me a lot of time. So that's where I guess the seed was planted. How can I be that person, that lawyer that can go in and help businesses in that kind of way and relieve that frustration that a solo um, general counsel or a solo person running a, a legal department in a business has? So that's where it came from. So when I had been with this company for a number of years, I sort of thought, well, it's either now or never. And um, I was having a, a significant uh, birthday as well. And so things sort of culminated that I was having this birthday, you know, only live once, life is too short, why not now? And then also just backing myself. I've done all of this. Why can I not do this? Why not, why not try? And I thought, if it didn't succeed, what would be the worst thing that happened? I mean, really, what would be the worst thing? It would be going and trying another employed lawyer job. And that's not a bad thing, right? So the worst scenario was not really the worst. It was a good thing. So there weren't any downsides. Um, I had savings when I left the company I was at. We had paid into a retirement system. So I, I got a retirement 
fund that you know helped me through that first year while I was waiting for the paperwork so there was a lot there that sort of enabled me you know financial backing the real spirit within that I backed myself and I could do it the experience that I had and being able to uh, push away the naysayers with the support that I had from other people especially the executive coach the support sounds like it was really the key to being able to go off and do what you actually wanted to do instead of staying where it was more comfortable it's true. And there was also a couple of other groups. And I think one of the people you may have had on, I'm not sure, Catherine Gronauer, I think you have had, and I'm not sure if you had Jennifer Shinkai, but groups like that, women like that who are entrepreneurs who knew about running businesses and had were free, a few years ahead of me could help someone like me who was a lawyer who really hadn't run a business and lots of things I didn't know. So there were groups that we were involved in where we shared information and, and tips and um, advice. And those were great because they also... Form, that helped me form really good relationships with those uh, particular people as well. And so, you know, they're my great friends now who I turn to for a lot of help. Uh, so those were good times as well, having that sort of female community, lawyer community, business community, um, and the other professional support, really key for me at least. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned before, there aren't a lot of foreign lawyers, lawyers. No, only, only in just Japan. Over 400 yeah right only, yeah that's right but you still ended up being the first female to practice actively in Tokyo so do you know what factors may have contributed to that being the case well I don't know I don't know the actual answer but I do know that most lawyers are very risk adverse and so the idea of setting up your own law firm may not be very attractive to a lot of women. Um, it may also be that they have a lot of pressures of family as well as running, you know, their own business. Um, and I mean running their own business inside a, a, a private practice or as an in-house legal counsel, right, doing their day job as well as having their family to look after. So there could be that aspect. But there were many women before me and they didn't take that step, which is, it does intrigue me, but I think there might be social pressures. Um, it is always easy to stay in a comfortable, more comfortable position um, and have the salary uh, coming in. And I think that may be seen as risk adverse. So for me, in a way, actually being at the beck and call of an employer could be more risky, right? They can at any time basically say, you're on your way, you know, that we don't need you anymore. So having your own business means you're really in control. So perhaps there's a bit of that, that I gradually became less thinking about risk. And I think really when I grew up as well, a big part of this is uh, in New Zealand, you, you grow up to know and believe that you can do anything because it's in your DNA. And, you know, New Zealand gave women the vote the first in the world, 1893, before America, before other countries, right? And so we are already led to believe that we can do as much as we can. We got the vote. We've got a good legal system to protect us. Um, and I grew up in a family that was supportive. There was never any doubt. You know, I want to study Japanese, dad and mum. Is that okay? Yeah, just go and do it. You know, I want to be a lawyer now. Oh, okay, do it. So there was never any, why are you doing that? So no naysayers in my upbringing. I really only got that when I started to set up my own business. So I think there's a combination there of inner spirit, upbringing, 
um, and exposure to the environment and just challenging some of the boundaries that we set on ourselves as lawyers. But I still don't know the definitive answer to your question about why it was me and um, why it wasn't others. But I think those, those sort of aspects are things that I've thought about that may have been part of it. Well, I'm glad that it is you because you are setting a very <laughs> strong and impressive path for people to follow in. So have you seen any misconceptions that people do have about women working in Japan? Oh, yes, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, but they're probably not specific only to women in Japan, but women in general, perhaps one of the big ones would be that women may be submissive and don't stand up for themselves. And um, sometimes that may extend to people believing that Japanese have trouble with uh, dealing with professional women. And I think that's really never been the case for me. I've always felt that being a female here is somewhat an advantage. You get extra attention and Japanese people really perceive women as being easier to deal with, to be honest. Um, and most of the positions I've had, they've been very laden with men working with me, engineers or people working in the business teams. But I've never been treated with disrespect in Japan amongst those business people. They really treated me very, very well. And I think that comes from, you know, when you're being introduced, people know where you, what you've done, your credibility, your background, which is very important. And I guess that means you get a rank that's properly understood and you're given the appropriate treatment for the job that you've got. So I recommend that people really know uh, where you've come from and who you are. The other thing I would say is sometimes you hear a misconception that female executives or females don't support other women. And as I've just told you, I think that's a complete myth um, throughout my career. And even, as I said, launching my business, most of the supportive people in my life have been other women. Um, maybe there's also a misconception that women are too emotional about business, but I actually think bringing out that empathy thread does make you a better uh, person in business than um, not, leave, not letting emotion come into the way that you do work. And of course, there's different places and time for showing emotion or embracing emotion. And I guess the last one would be, uh, I often hear that women are just less ambitious than men, you know, especially they, women in Japan or Japanese women get labeled with that. And sure, there are more male leaders at the top of successful companies in Japan, but that's not because women lack ambition. I think there's been plenty of studies to show that women are actually better at goal setting than men. And goal setting, of course, is one major aspect of ambition. But I do think that women can be incredibly driven and really, really ambitious. But uh, it may not just be in pursuit of financial gain. And that may be why people are thinking that people that women are less ambitious if it's not for financial gain. Women are told that ambition is not really socially acceptable or it's not very socially appealing. So maybe that's a perception that we have. But it doesn't mean that, you know, enjoying your work or... Um, having that uh, empathy, for example, means that we're any less ambitious than men. It's just a different kind of ambition. So those would be a few I see happening in Japan. Yeah, thank you for highlighting those for us. Just in the interest of time, I do want to keep moving on to talking about how you have built your business network in Japan. One of the many common threads throughout this conversation has just been the importance of relationships and strong relationships, diverse relationships in Japan. But 
the idea of going out and networking when you first get off the airplane in Haneda or wherever you happen to land in Japan, that just seems very overwhelming <laughs> to say the least. So do you have any specific recommendations for people who might be starting fresh in Japan and need to try to build a network? Yeah, for me, you know, even coming to Japan, I hadn't been here apart from visits to Japan. But the essence of building the relationship in Japan starts outside of Japan. I, for me, it did anyway. And that would be my advice. Getting involved in uh, business organizations and social uh, contribution organizations in the home country that involve Japan. So I was on a, a Japan festival committee. I was on a sister city committee. I contributed there and got to know a whole bunch of people who had their contacts in Japan. So that when I visited here, you know, with groups, uh, my first few trips were really uh, exchange groups, exchange um, schemes, for example, bringing students here or bringing a mayor from a town into Japan. So building relationships in that way. So I think once you arrive in Japan, if you haven't already got your contacts, I'm kind of wondering why you're here in the first place. And I don't mean to be disrespectful for anyone who's arrived out of Haneda or Narita with no contacts, but I wonder why, because I don't think I would go into the States or France or anywhere where my native language was not English. And I'm not saying America is not native English. It is, but I'm talking about France or other countries in Europe without having some sort of roots already in there in some way, I think it would be far too difficult. So my advice would be to get in communities before you arrive. If you happen to not do it and you arrive in Japan, then seeking out communities here. There's a lot now, more than there were when I arrived 19 years ago, um, communities on Facebook and other communities where you can meet with other foreigners, but not always sticking with your foreigner group, making, you know, you're sending your tentacles out to Japanese-related groups as well that perhaps have a tie-in to your home. And many of the people I know are in chambers of commerce here. Maybe in the States, they may not be as active, but in Japan, they certainly are. And so joining your country's chamber of commerce is a massively good way of meeting business contacts. There's all business people in those groups. And so building your community there. And once you meet people as um, not just getting a business card or scanning their QR code as is done more often now than an actual business card, but continuing to deepen the relationship with them, keeping in touch. If you just meet somebody and put them on your CRM, you know, and think, oh, I'll follow up with them next year, it's not really good enough. Um, so keeping up contact, being mindful of people, uh, sharing information with them that they might need, an article that you've seen or inviting them to an event, even if it's online. So investing in that relationship, not just a network where you, you, you throw a net over people, right? You do build a relationship. That's really key. So I hope that's helpful for some people who are listening. I definitely think that's helpful. As far as my listeners, most of them are younger professionals. So kind of hearing how you can build, find and develop those relationships is definitely an important reminder. Sure. And I think also just knowing a lot about the customs in Japan, they really are quite different. You know, communication being one thing, you know, Japanese will leave a lot of, uh, you know, not even finish a sentence, for example, they'll leave a lot to your imagination. And so knowing what the silence means or 
knowing what hasn't been communicated that is actually being communicated non-verbally. Really very key here if you expect everything to be said to you and, and told to you, it's not going to happen so much here. So there's a really important to have that understanding to help communication because as we know, communication is everything in order to get on with people and build relationships and businesses. Yeah, it will be a little bit difficult if you expect everybody to communicate the same way as you did back in the United States, where it's notoriously low context culture. You literally yeah, say everything right. all the time. So exactly. Japan is very high context. So you do need to be really conscious of that completely different. So how did you kind of build that awareness? Did that come over time for you? Or was it more of an intentional learning process? I think the latter, more intentional learning, exactly learning the Japanese language, really, unlike English language, which I think is grammatically based and you have sentence structure, Japan and Japanese, Japanese language is very much based in culture. Um, so when you're learning the language, you're also learning different aspects of the culture. And so from, you know, back in when it was 1986, I think it was, I started learning Japanese from there and just building up on that. There's still so many things I learn. But that's one of the things I would say it's an investment. It's, uh, it takes three times longer to learn Japanese language. I've heard this week a script language than it does other languages. So you need to invest in the, the learning of a language. I think here, especially, I don't think I would have stayed in Japan as long as I have without the language. That's for sure. I definitely agree that you learn so much more about the culture by learning the language as well. Some people have the impression that you can kind of bypass that and just study the culture <laughs> but I do think that they do they go best hand in hand yeah they're so interwoven I really do think so you can have a lot of people help you with the mm -hmm. language if you're not so good at it but I really think an investment in Japan requires you to have a good language grasp can you tell us a little bit more about your overall experience as a non-traditional worker in Japan? I've heard of experiences from other people who try to build their small businesses or try to work as freelancers. And I know that there can be some challenges unique to Japan in that area. Yeah, I think overall for me, maybe I'm an exception, but even being a non-traditional worker here, I think my overall impression and experience in Japan has been positive and it has been rewarding but I think it's because of that investment and in time early in early days to ensure that I had a good grasp of language that I was a human first before being a, a lawyer and as I said I don't think I would have been here nearly 20 years if it hadn't been a good experience for me but it's good to keep curious or keep people curious too you know and be a little bit mysterious and keep people on their toes by being a little bit different here so I'm different in many ways um, I look different you know I come from New Zealand not a uh, a country where there's a lot more foreigners uh, you know the states being one um, and I sort of I toe the line but I'm still very conservative so I sort of walk that fine line between semi-radical but also conservative so being very very careful about those things I learned very early on that you know, wearing a bright nail polish, for example, was not a good thing to do to go to a job interview. So I don't do that. But outside of those places where you really have to be conservative, I can show my true self and um, be more vibrant. So I think that would be quite key is knowing where you can step out and be more active and encourage others to be curious and do different things that are a bit more mysterious. 
but also keep up with the etiquette where you have to as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I wish I had a bad story to tell you um, to make your podcast more interesting. Um, but my experience here has been good. But I think it's that investment. Um, and like most things, if you invest in the time, and it is an investment, um, that it will reap rewards for you later on with the success that comes with it. I'm glad that you don't have a bad story to share. <laughs> That's also good to hear. I'm not okay. saying that there hasn't been bad times, you know, moving moving jobs and having people's impressions of you. That's always something you're going to deal with. Uh, and there are times where it's been lonely and there are times where it's been sad and I miss my family and all those things. That's the very human um, experience of being in any foreign country. But there's always something around the corner. I have found there's always some way to, to get up, get past that. And that's been my overall experience of being in Japan. And I, I absolutely love being here. Mm-hmm. So as somebody who's been able to establish a life in Japan, you've been there for over 20 years. How do you maintain that curiosity, that mindset? Oh, that's such a good question. I think I just try to embrace that every single day. And that may sound corny, but it's really looking for something that's a bit different or going down a rabbit hole and researching something or finding out something different Um, and just being interested in other people. And I think we're online a lot these days and making sure that, you know, when you start a meeting, you're actually finding out about people. And it always takes me down curious uh, rabbit holes to find out more about people. And I think if we're not doing that now during this pandemic, we won't be doing it at all. So just being actively thinking about curiosity and having it as a sort of mantra in the way that I do things. I think that's really key for me is keeping it front of mind. Yeah. And I can see how it would be more of a practice, something that you have to intentionally cultivate and maintain. Certainly. I mean, it doesn't, curiosity doesn't just grow on trees. And so you do have to be very active and have it front of mind to be thinking about it each day. When you're meeting with people, what's the interesting question you can ask them that will draw out something about them that you didn't know? Um, And I think that's great. And as you know, I have my own podcast, Lawyer on Air, and part of that curiosity is, you know, can I run a, a podcast? Can I be, again, the first lawyer in Japan to run and be a host of a a podcast yes I can and so that is also helping me really develop more curiosity about the guests that I have on and sometimes they think they're not very interesting but being able to approach the podcast in a way that enables them to come out of their shells and also show how interesting they are I think that develops curiosity amongst the listeners as well which reflects back on me so that's been something else I think that's been uh fantastic to bring out more of the curiosity within myself. Mm. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And I'm also a listener of your podcast, even though I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) not especially familiar with the lifestyles and struggles of lawyers particularly, but I do really resonate with the stories that a lot of your guests share in terms of managing their careers, managing working in different cultural contexts. It's definitely something that applies well beyond just working in law. Exactly. Thank you. There's so many people who've said that, and I really appreciate that you're listening. A lot of people who are not lawyers, who are outside of law, um, and women, and also men. There's a lot of men who are providing feedback to me that they're listening in and really enjoying it. And that just is so heartwarming. I love that, that it's gone beyond 
the center that I had planned for the podcast. It's really fantastic. And I can also resonate as a fellow podcaster that being a podcaster just allows you to grow in your own curiosity, grow in your own ability to learn about other people, to maintain that interest in other people, because it can be so easy, at least for me, it can be a little bit easy to fall into my own shell and be too concerned about what's going on in my own life. So being able to explore other people's lives and pick their brains, even if it's just for an hour, is definitely invaluable in my experience. Oh, so is. And your podcast is amazing. And you've got such a variety of people there. So I think anyone listening to any of your episodes can pick out one or two or three things that they can take into their own life, Mm -hmm. uh, no matter what kind of person you're interviewing. Mm -hmm. We can all learn something from everyone. Sure can. I just was curious if you had any examples in your life, either in work or just in day-to-day activities of a communication breakdown due to differences in culture in Japan? Oh, there's so many. That's such a hard question, but it's, there's some real basic ones. You know, there's the way that Japanese will respond to you when you ask questions, you know, I understand doesn't always mean you understand or yes, I agree, maybe not said so directly. So people may say yes in a meeting, but they don't really mean yes. Um, it could mean I'm just listening to you. I understand what you're saying. So being really careful around those things. There was one I heard recently, someone was saying, and I don't know how they were going to London, but anyway, they were saying, I'll be in London by July 15th. Um, this is obviously a while ago, a few months ago, but this confusion by, with by and until, um, I think the person meant that they would be in London until July 15th, but it's taken from the, the underlying Japanese. Uh, made and made ni and that kind of preposition can get you in trouble so clarifying what people mean is very important and also sometimes Japanese will say to you you had better attend that meeting Um, had better is taught in schools I believe to mean something better than should more polite than should so had better can sound like a bit of a warning or a threat to us you had better attend that meeting means oh you should attend that meeting And that has a different implication, right? So being very careful as the international business person um, on what those mean, those sorts of mistakes or interpretations. Yeah, I think those are a few, um, but being very, very careful about them because the way of communicating is not always the same. So verifying with someone who's maybe been in Japan a bit longer could be helpful or reconfirming with the other person. And sometimes, as we know, the no contact from somebody also means uh, they mean no. So pushing pushing the envelope on, you know, you haven't replied. Why haven't you replied? Sometimes a no reply is actually your reply. Um, so being very careful about those things. Yeah, there's some, there's some to be aware of in communication breakdown. Mm-hmm. So if you were chatting with somebody who is going to Japan for business and they unfortunately didn't have time to study the language, they didn't have time to learn about the culture more deeply, what would you advise them to learn ahead of time before they get to Japan? Uh, I think you'd have to learn a few cultural aspects that I've talked about, a few greetings at least. I mentioned business cards. Again, these days people are meeting a lot online. And even um, exchanging business cards here, there's a little bit of hesitancy now with the business card because of COVID-19. And so, you know, popping a QR code on your card is really good or doing having the digital business card set up and being ready to do that very, very quickly. 
and not have to search for it. Where is it on your iPhone? Where is it, you know, having that already ready and being very savvy about that. Um, and I guess you can perhaps let people know in advance that you're going to be not having business cards and you'll be doing everything digitally. It always lets people, letting people know in advance is always a good thing to do. So not making people feel surprised or putting them, you know, in a position where they're a little bit more embarrassed and they don't have a digital card, for example. I realized recently, you know, since we're online a lot, that turning up at one minute or two minutes to an event is not done, right? We do it on Zoom. We might turn up one or two minutes before a meeting. But in Japan, this 10 minutes early is still on time, is still correct. I turned up at a restaurant last week uh, a few minutes before 2 p.m. and it was actually late. <laughs> so um, I should have still got there at 1.50 because that, the three people I was meeting were already there and I was quite shocked. So that was a good reminder. So being very careful about those sorts of etiquette, uh, basic etiquette things and a good reminder to myself, even after being here a long time, just to be very careful and following up after meetings, making sure you do follow up with people uh, and thank them and do all sorts of things like that to make sure that uh, you keep the relationship that you've built. That would be a few things there. Mm -hmm. And those are all very important things to keep in mind. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to share the conversation with my listeners. But is there anything that we missed today? Didn't really get to cover any questions you wish I had asked you today? No, I think you really covered the, um, the whole gambit. I just have really appreciated you inviting me on. I hope it's of use to everybody. Um, I'm happy for anyone to contact me on LinkedIn if they've heard um, and connect in that way. Let me know what you're doing, what you're interested in. I'm happy to help out some more. But I think we've covered everything today, Lydia. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Well, perfect. Thank you. And you can find all of her information in the description of the episode today. And you should definitely follow her on LinkedIn. Even if you're just a little bit curious about her podcast, she posts about it quite a bit. You can kind of get a sense of what it's all about if you're a little bit worried about adding it to your subscription list. So definitely go check her out on LinkedIn. And thanks again. Thanks so much, Lydia. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's interview on the Business Success Japan podcast. If you want to learn more from Catherine O'Connell, be sure to check out all of her links in the description of this episode. Remember that you can hear even more from her and the other amazing lady lawyers she interviews on her show, The Lawyer on Air podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to help support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear from you directly, so please, if you would like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo. Thank you.